I'm, I'm always uh, intrigued at how these things come together. Matthew chapter 25, I'm going to read beginning in verse 31 and I'll read to the end of the chapter. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me naked, and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, please bless the reading of Your Word. Holy Spirit, please give illumination and understanding Lord Jesus, we pray that everything that we do here would, would make you glad to be here, to lead us to worship, and to stand in the midst of this congregation, and to say, Behold, I and the children thou hast given me. Oh Lord, we want to see you high and lifted up. So do that for us in our hearts and in our minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I would assume that every man in the room has probably gone over the following scenario at least one time in their minds. You're lying in bed. It's deep into the night. It's dark outside. It's dark inside. 
and you're sound asleep. You don't know that you're asleep because you're asleep, but you are asleep. And suddenly you hear and are awakened by a loud crash echoing through your home. Now because you're aware of the chronology of events and how sound travels and those sort of things, the fact that you are startled awake by this sound, you, you get all that in your head, you know that you had to have been asleep when the sound occurred. If the sound happens and wakes you up, the sound has to happen first. But somehow, and probably just because you've gone over and over this scenario in your mind, it's, it's uh, created a rut in your brain, somehow, even in the recesses of REM cycle sleep, you're able to retain every detail of this sound. You've already, at the very moment that your mind is cognizant of being awake, you've already done the mental work of dissecting each of the parts of this sound, this crash. And you can, you can identify blunt force impact, and you can identify cracking and splintering wood, and you can identify debris falling to the ground, and you can identify your living room door slamming against the wall somehow, even though the, you know all of that had to have happened while you were asleep. And you know because you've gone over and over this scene in your mind in preparation and in planning, you know as soon as you hear that sound that somebody is in your house. Somebody you don't know has entered your home. Now that you, you know they've got to be under some sort of mental stress to come into the house of somebody they don't know. And you're thinking, they don't know me. They don't know what I've got. What, what would cause a person to come into the house of somebody they don't know, knowing, not knowing what I've got to protect myself, and yet here they are. There's something happening in their mind. There's some sort of agenda that they feel they have to accomplish before the night is over. And as far as you know, by the time your mind works all of that out, this intruder or these intruders are seven steps into your living room. And you've gone over and over this scene in your mind because you hope that having thought it through, you'll be able in that moment to respond quickly enough and think clearly enough with enough mental clarity and boldness to do what you need to do to protect your family and to protect your home. But in that moment, when that intruder is seven steps into your living room, eight, nine, ten, eleven steps into your living room, there's not going to be any planning. All the planning's done. At that moment, it will not matter. It'll be too late because they're already there. And that's the, the picture that our Lord has used and that the, the, the New Testament Paul uses elsewhere, this picture to describe or illuminate or illustrate the second coming of Christ. When it happens, it's too late. Planning's done, preparation's done, it doesn't matter. And our Lord uses this illustration to exhort us to be alert, to be prepared, to be always examining ourselves, to be diligent in our labors. Again, because when that day comes, all of those things will be through. In the Olivet Discourse, that day, the final day, is the concluding topic. The day that will come like a thief in the night. Remember the disciples... In chapter 24, they heard His clear pronouncement of judgment coming upon the city of Jerusalem. 
the judgment that will come upon the then living generation, remember all of these things will come upon this generation, and so they inquired, when's that going to happen? When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? More than likely assuming, as most Jews would have, that the destruction of Jerusalem would have been coincidental with the end of all things. They just assumed if Jerusalem's coming down, and we're sort of the center of the world, then that has to be the end of everything. And so he's spoken throughout this discourse to clarify the destruction of Jerusalem the fall of the old covenant economy, the establishment and the rise of the kingdom of Christ on the earth, a time period that has covered so far almost 2,000 years. And then in the latter portion of the discourse, he's turned his attention to preparing them for that final day, the day of destruction at his return. Verses 31 to 46, which we've already read, he describes in detail what they should expect to take place on that final day. Notice what it says in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes. They had asked, what will be the sign of your coming? When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And the word they used, coming, is the word parousia. What will be the sign of your presence? That same word is used in chapter 24, verse 3. That's their question. What will be the sign of your coming? Verse 27 of that chapter, the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 37, the coming of the Son of Man. And verse 39, the coming of the Son of Man. That term is used repeatedly. But here, it's a different word. When the Son of Man comes, and this is the word we typically think of when we hear the word comes. It means to move from one place to another. When that happens... And that word was used in verse 27 with regard to the lightning. As lightning comes, chapter 24, verse 27, chapter 24, verse 30, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Verse 39, the flood came. Verse 42, you do not know when your Lord is coming. Verse 43, the thief was coming. The Son of Man is coming. Verse 44, in an hour you do not expect. Verse 46, when the Master comes... Into chapter 25 and verse 10, the bridegroom came. Verse 11, the virgins came. Verse 25, 19, the master of those servants came. Verse 27, at my coming. And then here in our text, when the Son of Man comes. When He moves from there to here. And the, the, the tense of the verb, we could read it this way. When the Son of Man will have come. It's not denoting the process, but it's assuming the moment when the process is already done. He's already made His way from here, from there to here. Now I'm just putting all of that together. It appears almost as if our Lord has been alluding to His general presence and power shown throughout the church age in various characteristics, answering their first question, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming, which will then culminate in an actual physical coming, a single climactic event that will end all climactic events to answer their second question, the end of the age. That's not definitive. That, just, that could be what's happening. 
He says, when the Son of Man comes. That word when, as you know, is not setting forth a definitive time. It could be any time. The idea is whenever that time is, the following is going to characterize that event. And so the point here, again, throughout, as it has been throughout the discourse, is not to explain when. It's to tell us about the event, but not to give us a time frame. But we do know from Acts chapter 17 and verse 31 that the day that's being described here is a day fixed. It's settled. God knows when it is. His calendar is marked. It can't be changed. It can't be altered. His, he decreed that day from the very beginning. And there are a few things that are more clear in Scripture than that this day is coming. It's always been on the horizon. Jude, verses 14 and 15, he says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, a man alive when Adam was alive, prophesied, saying, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment. He knew it's coming. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon knew. He said, God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. He knew God is going to come and there will be a, uh, an account given for everything. In Matthew chapter 28, we know that even the demons of hell know this day is coming. Matthew 8 verse 29, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know it's coming. Everybody knows this day is coming. In Scripture, this event is called the great and awesome day, the great day, the day of the Lord, the day of God, the day of judgment. Let me just read off a litany of, of scriptural language that describes this day. When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. He's, that's what's going to happen. That's 2 Thessalonians 1.10. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free will hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the earth. They're going to call for the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus says in John 5, all who are in the tombs will hear His voice. They're going to come out of the tombs, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Paul again in 1 Thessalonians 4 says, The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Peter says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. Heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Already in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus has said, just like it was in the flood when people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage all the way up until the day the door shut, that's how it's going to be when He comes, when that consummated presence comes, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. We shall, shall not all sleep, Paul says, but we shall all be changed on that day. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. The perishable body will put on the imperishable. The mortal body will put on immortality. 
We who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. God will transform our lowly bodies to be like the glorious body of the Lord Jesus, Philippians 3. And on that day, He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things will have passed away. All of that makes it sufficient for Joel, the prophet, to just refer to it as the day. And you know what he's talking about, the day. Now while it is important to keep all of that in our hearts and our minds, here we have in verse 31 a picture setting the stage for the balance of this chapter. And we see that that day centers around not just cataclysmic events and not just people in general, but it actually centers around a person. When the Son of Man comes. Now we believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is the primary substance the end goal and the supreme object of all that God has ever done in redemptive history, that He is the crowning jewel of all divine revelation. We believe that nothing on that final day will have any value, whether it is blessing or whether it is cursing, apart from the One who is coming. The, the substance of that day. He gives it its substance. Christ gives that day its weight and its value. It will be because of Christ that that day will either be a day of great joy or a, a day of, of indescribable terror. It's because of Him. It's not just the atmosphere. It's not just going to be stormy and dark and, well, I don't like the thunder and so that's going to be scary. No, it's going to be either terrifying or joyful because of the one that's coming. He gives it all of its substance, its weight and its value. And so... For today, I just want us to consider the coming one. In this verse, we see His identity, His glory, His army, and His duty. And hopefully this will just sort of set the stage for the rest of this chapter, give us a glimpse of what that day holds. Uh, you could consider it maybe a, a, a quick biblical theology or systematic theology of the, the day. But that centers around the one coming. So notice first the identity of the coming one. The one whose return we await is the victorious, invincible, sovereign Son of Man. He says, when the Son of Man comes. As far as I can tell, that phrase, Son of Man, is used 77 times in the Gospels Christ using it for Himself. We, I've said before, this is His favorite title for Himself. He gets it from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Since we've looked at that passage many times in the past with relation to this title, we'll do it again. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, Daniel says. And behold... With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory 
and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." Now remember, the setting of that scene that Daniel is seeing follows the ascension of Christ. We just read about it in Psalm 47. We just, we just read about this. Christ is taken up in the clouds. His disciples watch Him leave. On those same clouds He comes and is presented in the presence of God the Father. All of that following His completed work of redemption for His people. He finishes the work... He stands there on the mountain and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he ascends and Daniel sees it. And he says, He was given an everlasting dominion, a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. Everlasting, eternal rule and power without end, without question, no substantial opposition to this dominion. A kingdom that shall not be destroyed, invincible, indestructible, full, comprehensive, exhaustive authority and power. That is given to one that Daniel says he was like a son of man. And you know that's a reference to incarnate deity. The God-man. He's accomplished redemption. He's conquered death. He has resurrected. He's ascended into the heavens in power to rule over all. A man who rules over all men. A man ruling from the position of victory. Not just unto victory, but from victory. A man ruling over an invincible kingdom. A man who lived under the law, suffered at the hands of other men, bore the curse of sin for other men. A man to whom all creation renders praise and adoration. The coming one is a man. Like us, yet without sin. A man who ascended into the heavens on a cloud. He's going to come again with the clouds. He's going to come. This man is going to come with power and great glory. This man is going to come with the armies of heaven in tow. Amen. A man is going to sit on a glorious throne and judge the world. And when he comes, all of the world is going to see that man living in the dead We'll see that man. The cemeteries are going to empty out. Every cemetery on earth are going to empty out. The oceans, they're, they're going to empty themselves. The dirt will give up every particle of every deceased and decayed body that has ever existed from wherever it is. And they're all going to come together at one time with a singular vision. And they're going to look and they're going to behold this one like a son of man. And somehow, and I, this is what I don't know other than glorification the work of God, but somehow everyone will know as they look at this man, that's God. That's God in human flesh. All men in that moment, every man who has ever lived will recognize Creator. All creation is going to recognize its maker and sustainer and Lord. Animals and plants and stars are going to recognize maker. They're going to know it. Every cult 
Whoever got the deity of Christ wrong on that day, they'll know that man's God. The Jehovah's Witnesses, that man's God. The Mormons, they're going to say, that man's God. The 12 tribes, they're going to say, we were wrong. That man's God. There will be no more debates, no discussions, no questions rattling around in anybody's mind. Who is this? Can anybody figure out who this man is? It'll all be done. Even the devils of hell are going to know this man is God. Because he didn't ask for their permission when he ascended through their territory, the territory of the prince of the power of there. He didn't ask for their permission. And he's not going to ask for their permission when he comes back through. They're going to step aside because they know this man is God. Step back, guys, and just, just let him do what he's going to do. So that's God. He came to secure his bride. He's going to come again to get her, true God and true man. This coming one is the Son of Man. He's already taken his seat as sovereign Lord over all. He's going to come back to his creation, not via a messenger, not via a delegate. He's going to come in person because this final day is worthy of his personal presence. That's the identity of the coming one. Notice secondly... The glory of the coming one. Glory, you know, is defined as the, the showing forth of the divine perfections. The effulgence of beauty. We could, we could summarize and just say it's the splendor of God. And we can't comprehend that phrase, but that's what it is. It's, everything in this verse points to the glory of Jesus Christ. But here... We have reason, I think, to focus more intently on the truth that when Christ comes in glory, He's going to come in a showing forth of divine perfections that has been up until that point reserved, almost set aside and, and held back for the final day. It says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory... It's the glory of the Son of Man, the glory of incarnate deity. It's His glory, His own peculiar glory. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the heavenly bodies and there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. The glory of the heavenly is of one kind, the glory of the earthly is of another. One glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. In other words, everything has its own peculiar glory. It's a specific thing that, that shines forth whatever intrinsic value or beauty it has in it. And so here, when the Son of Man comes, He's going to come in His glory, exclusive to Him. It's all His. And it is the glory of God, all of the glory of God, coupled with all of the glory of God, contained and veiled in human flesh, the God incarnate. Now this particular glory in which Christ will come will be the culmination and combination of the glories, if we want to use that word, the glories intrinsic to every stage of His eternal existence and His redemptive work. Now I've broken this up. I just want you to see how all of these ingredients come together to produce this peculiar glory. Consider His glory in eternity. As we've already heard, He prayed, Father, glorify me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. In eternity, the Son of God was the radiance of the glory of the Godhead. It was Him. 
All of it was right there in Him in eternity. We know the text of Isaiah 6. And in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the terrain of His robe, that symbol of the majesty and grandeur and glory of a king, filled the temple, the kings in the temple. And these angels call one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And John said... Isaiah said these things, or Christ in the Gospel of John, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Christ's glory. That is John speaking. He saw what Isaiah saw. The whole earth is full of his glory. Whose glory, John? Christ's glory. In the incarnation, though his deity was veiled by humanity, even in that veiling, the joining of two whole complete natures in one unique person, that carries with it its own peculiar glory. It's not less glory. It's more glorious. John says, "...the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory." Glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. At the transfiguration, that glory sort of peeked through a little bit pierced into the already. It says they became fully awake and saw His glory in Luke 9. He shined bright like white. His, his clothes were dazzling white, whiter than anybody on earth could have bleached them. That was the glory of God shining through a man. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, that God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we know that the fullness of deity dwells bodily in Christ. And so that glory shining through and in Christ is all of the divine glory. So there is a peculiar glory that's intrinsic to the Godhead. But, but think about it. That Godhead dwelling in bodily form, in human flesh without composition, without mixture, two natures in one person, that's its own peculiar glory. That's, that's a, whole, a whole nother level. But then we come to the crucifixion. And contrary to reason, a whole nother level of glory is displayed there. Jesus answered them in John 12, 23, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. John 13, 31, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in Him. He's talking about going to the cross. Now is the time. And so we look at the cross and we see the victory of, of Christ over sin. We see the justice of God manifested as He punishes sin. We see the love of God as He lays the sins of His people on the person of Christ. We see the infinite value of Christ as He's put forth as the one whose uh, life and death is worthy, is substantial enough and sufficient enough to ransom an innumerable multitude of people from every tribe and language and people and nation unto God. We see all of that at the cross. Fullness of eternal deity dwelling in bodily form, hanging on a Roman cross, bearing eternal wrath for sinners. That's just another layer of glory. That's not, that's not less glory. It was an ignominious death, but it did not make him a less glorious person. That was, he was glorified there. 
There's glory of God, then you add that to the glory of the God-man, and then you couple that with the glory of the God-man satisfying the justice of Almighty God. Another facet of Christ's glory was and continues to be manifested after His resurrection and even until the present hour, right now. Another level of glory. He prayed in the high priestly prayer, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. He says, Father, I'm coming to you and I'm praying that they would someday be there so that they could see me like you see me. So that they could see what you've, what you've given me. In Mark 10, they ask, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. In Luke 24, he says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, God, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. There's another layer of glory. Think about it. A man is in heaven. A man is there. Human nature, our nature, has entered into the presence of Almighty God. What glory must there be dwelling in that resurrected human body for Him to go through the air, enter into the, the throne room of heaven, and all of creation does not rise and cast Him out, but they worship Him, that man in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, the elders and the living creatures and all the angels and every creature in heaven and earth, they're looking at incarnate Lord Jesus and they're worshiping the man sitting on the throne. Amen. You see, it just, it just layers. It's just layer of glory upon glory upon glory. And there's more to come. Because it says, when the Son of Man comes in His Glory. All of the previous stages of glory are going to be glorified and displayed and consummated at His coming. Eternal glory plus incarnate glory plus His glory and suffering unto death plus resurrected glory plus ascended ruling reigning glory plus climactic consummated conquering glory. All of that is in the phrase His glory. It's all intrinsic to Him. He's earned every bit of it. Because of who he is and what he's done, like an eagle scout who's playing with sticks and doing things to get patches on his vest, Christ has earned glory upon glory upon glory. And when he comes, all of it is going to be manifest. All of the divine perfections are going to be shown forth in a way that they've never been seen before. Mankind will see a fuller display of God's glory than ever before in human form, in a man coming in power and great glory. And at His return, there will be no veiling of His glory. It's not just going to be a momentary glimpse. It's not going to be a peek into His glory. It will be all of the glory of the Godhead. All of the glory of the Godhead joined to the nature of a man. All of the glory of the Godhead joined to the nature of a man Humbled, obedient, dying, rising, ascending, reigning, conquering from that time until now. 
Luke 9, 26 says He's going to come in His glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. It's all just going to combine. Everything that happens on that day is going to be pointing to His particular glory. That will be the day of the Lord in the truest sense, the greatest possible sense. It will be His day. It will be for Him. He will come. He will be the focus. All eyes are going to be upon Him. And every moment, every, everything on the itinerary is just going to turn eyes to see His glory. So it's His glory. That's not enough. Thirdly, then notice the army of the coming one. The army. In Acts 1.11, you remember the angel said this, Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven. That's true. I think there's going to be a little more. I think when He comes, it's not going to be... He's not going to descend in a peaceful, geographically isolated event in the way that He ascended. The biblical imagery will not allow us to picture this day to be a tranquil day, a peaceful day. When He comes, He will come riding on a white horse. The sky will split open. The entirety of the earth's skyline will be filled with an angelic army more terrifying than any army that's ever been amassed on this planet. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him. That's His army. All the angels. Now, historically, it has been, just like it is now, a nation is often judged by its military power, its strength. In a monarchy, the power of the king is often judged by the size of his army. A king's power, a king's influence, would be measured by the number of mighty men that he had. That's why it's important that they, we know who David's mighty men were. All of that is saying, look how mighty David was. A census would usually be taken either to, to, to exact taxes or for a prideful king just to remind himself of how powerful he was. It was a symptom of his own idolatrous heart. We've talked about David on Sunday evenings when he took that census. But the army of the coming Lord Jesus is described this way. All the angels with him. That's his army. All the angels now, God often carries out acts of judgment through His angels. In Genesis 19, two angels destroy Sodom and Gomorrah in the cities of the valley, the plain. In Exodus chapter 12, an angel known as, quote, the destroyer killed every firstborn son in Egypt. 2 Samuel 24, an angel killed 70,000 Israelites. In 2 Kings 19, a single angel killed 185,000 Men, the largest non-racing sports stadium in the world seats 150,000 people. Angels are powerful beings. They're not naked babies playing harps. Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 26, Do you not think that I can, cannot appeal, or do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? He's saying, he's reminding them that he has immediate access to over 72,000 angels. What he's saying is, do you not realize that they're waiting? And if I so much as flinch the wrong way, this earth is going to be infested and annihilated by destroying angels. 
And when the Son of Man comes in His glory, all the angels are coming with Him. Revelation 5 says that there are myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. It's ten thousands of ten thousands. Angels more than can be numbered. A number incomprehensible to the minds of men of these mighty destroyers. They're going to come with Him. Following the man, Christ Jesus. John says, I saw heaven open to behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. In the same chapter, the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on horses. I believe they're going to come and they're going to have one eye on their task and they're going to have one eye on their commander. Watching, hanging upon his every command. Looking at the man, Christ Jesus. Angels that have watched as their Lord became an infant. They watched Him hated. They watched Him sleep on the ground, sweat drops of blood. They watched Him get spit on and, and hit and beat and whipped by other mortal men, creatures. They watched as He hung on the cross for hours. They watched as His friends came and took down His lifeless body. And as we've already heard, they celebrated as they watched Him come out of the tomb and return into glory. We know that they rejoice at the salvation of every sinner. And for all of history, they've watched as the saints are trampled upon and hated and despised and tortured and killed. They're watching. And on that day, this bloodthirsty horde will fill the sky with sickle in hand to gather those saints from every corner of the earth and execute vengeance upon the wicked. They're all going to be following this one commander-in-chief, Yahweh Sabaoth, the commander of the armies of the Lord, who is, again, the man, Christ Jesus. Now put all the biblical imagery together. This is the picture that I have in my mind anyway. I, don't, I, I would imagine they probably have some sort of... Uh, chain of command and they're going to come and maybe work in battalions but they will come and they will kill and they will stop and they'll look at him and he will give them the word and they will march forward and they will kill and they will stop and they'll look to him and he'll give them the word and they will kill and they will march forward reaping vengeance, splattering blood all over his clothes, the blood of his enemies. The Bible says the bodies are going to litter the earth and feed the birds of the air. The, the, air. the blood is going to flow as high as a horse's bridle. It's not going to be tranquil. The Son of Man is coming as a warrior king. He is, as David was called, a man of blood. When he comes, all of his angels are going to come with him. Notice, fourthly, the duty of the coming one. He's going to come with one multifaceted goal, primarily here to judge the living and the dead. At His first coming, He was laid in a manger. He slept on the ground. He hung on a cross. He borrowed a tomb. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory with all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. You know a throne is a symbol of authority in a general sense. A king sits on a throne. It, it symbolizes the authority of the king to do king stuff. Here, specifically on that day, the king stuff is judgment. He's coming to judge. It is his prerogative as king, as lord, as master, as creator. The man Christ Jesus will sit and judge. John 5.27 He says, He 
The Father has given Him, the Son, authority to execute judgment. Why? Because He is the Son of Man. Because of what He's done. Him and no one else. Acts 17.31, He's fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. 2 Timothy 4.1, Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead. Acts 10.42, the one appointed by God to judge of the living or to be the judge of the living and the dead is Christ. Romans 2.16, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Romans, or Revelation 19.11, in righteousness He judges and makes war. He'll judge when He comes. That's what this throne represents. It's His throne. It's the throne of the judge. He's going to take His seat as the true supreme court. The books will be opened. Every deed will be examined. His eyes like a flaming fire will burn through every facade, every false pretense. Nothing is going to escape His gaze. All of it is going to be laid bare before the Son of Man. If the written Word of God is able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart, how much more the incarnate Word when He sits on His glorious throne in all of His glory. And all the men of the earth will stand and they will give an account to this man. Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ will judge with perfect, unmatched, incomprehensible justice. God's holy law will be the supreme and immovable standard of righteousness. The bar of perfection will not be lowered for any man, any woman, any boy, or any girl. The depths of the depravity of the hearts of every person will be opened up and manifested on that day for all to see. The verdict will be handed down from His glorious throne. We don't have to worry about a hung jury. There will be no mistrial. He is judge and jury. There will be no appeals, no confusion. Every mouth will be stopped. And your evil will be made known to you more clearly than it has ever been made known before. Notice He will sit on His glorious throne. Or the throne of His glory. It exists. This throne will show forth His majesty, His power, His justice. At this throne, all creation will be gathered at once to behold all of the fullness of divine glory in the man Christ Jesus. His majesty will be shown in the silence of all men as they meet their Maker. His power will be shown as He gathers all men in spite of the fact that a large portion of them would rather go ahead and cast themselves into hell than come and stand in His presence. His justice will be shown as men cry for mercy and yet will receive none. He's not going to shed a tear in sympathy for any wicked sinner. His omniscience will be shown as every single sin of every single person is laid in the balance of God's holy law, none excepting. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. The picture that's given to us in Scripture is that of a supremely Christocentric eschaton. That's the last day, the end time. The apocalypse. That word doesn't mean a great disaster where zombies are roaming the earth. The word apocalypse means revelation. 
The apocalypse is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the showing forth of Him. The last day is the day of the Lord. He will come in His glory with His angels and sit on His throne. That's what the day is about. Him. But here's what we think. But what about my sins? That's what we're thinking. It's pretty interesting in historically how that question has always been in the minds of people. Well, what about sins on that day? My answer to that is, what about them? What about them? You've either already given them to the judge, or you've already determined that you're going to hold on to them till that day. It, it, what, what about your sins? If you set your affections on Christ now, then when He appears, it will be the appearing of the one whom your soul loves. Yeah. You're not going to think, well, what about my sins? Uh, people are going to see, you're not going to think about people seeing your sins. I think we need to get to the point where we say, show them. Show them. I forget who said it. A man who has repented would, would, wouldn't care if his sins are written in the sky. We would say, show them. Show the world what you've borne in my place. Write them in the skies. It'll be a moment of supreme joy. Your faith will be sight. You'll see Him as He is. How could He, who has sufficiently carried the burden of every single one of your sins, sins you don't even know about, into the grave and come out without them, how could He treat you with the, the slightest bit of contempt on that day? There's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. There will be no condemnation then. You will not see a, a look in His eye, a mannerism of His physical body that will give you the slightest hint that He's upset with your sins because He's dealt with them. If you've given them to Him, that's what that day is going to be like. If... However, you reject Him now, you hold on to your righteousness now, then that day should be now and will be then more terrifying than you can even imagine. All of the planning, all the preparation will be over. All reasoning, all rationalizing will be done. Lips sealed. And you will enter into the vast, unending, never-diminishing sea of anguish in hell if you determine to hold on to your sins. What about your sins? Either give them to Him or hold on to Him or hold on to them. But that day's coming. And Christ is held out right now if you'll have Him. Amen. Right now. We might ask, why was yesterday not the great and awesome day of the Lord. Because God is still holding out Christ to sinners. He's waiting. He's still drawing sinners. We can't presume upon His kindness and say, well, it won't be tomorrow because it wasn't yesterday. All we can say is, I know it wasn't yesterday. That means there's mercy today. He's holding Him out again. Seek the Lord while He may be found. That's not tomorrow because you don't know tomorrow's coming. It's now. So let's pray. The scriptures are full of, especially with the language of Christ, of this constant paradox. Uh, 
the wrath of the Lamb, the, the God of peace will soon crush. Uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah as a lamb who was slain, so on and so forth, just setting forth all of the, the glories of God in Christ. And it's, Christ is, is the only thing, the only one that can be at a, in a single moment completely, totally, all satisfying and filling to the brim and leave you grasping for more as if you had had nothing. It's never, he is, it's never enough. In this life, it will never be enough for the believer. He is enough, but what we get is never enough. It will always have to be more. It's always more. It's always more. Um, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You've got it in Christ. Now hunger and thirst for it. And you'll be filled. And you're going to hunger and you'll be filled. And you're going to be hungry and you'll be filled. Christ fills us and leaves us wanting more. When we think of the day of judgment, we should always turn our hearts at least a little bit to the cross because at the cross there was a judgment rendered. God laid upon His Son the iniquity of us, of us all, and then He judged Him there as if He were the sinner. So the Lord's Supper for the believer is a, is a reminder to us. When we have the Lord's Supper, it's a reminder that that day that we've, we've talked about and we'll continue to talk about, the, the great and awesome day of the Lord, for us it's going to be the great wedding feast. It's going to be a great celebration, a joyful time. And every, every time we come to the Lord's table, it is, it's like a, an appetizer. It's good. It's a blessing. It's a means of grace. But you know there's more. You know this is not it. We always keep in our mind that there, there's coming a day. It points us to a day. So take, while the elements are distributed, take a minute. Meditate on what we've heard, the anguish, the suffering endured by Christ at the cross so that the final day for us will be a day of joy and gladness. And then we'll, we'll come to the table together.